You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is the second episode of a two and a half part series on the history of medicine shows. If you missed part one, then, well, you got trouble, my friend. Right here, I say trouble that started out with Play-Doh. No, not the kitty toy. That stuff is great. I say always mighty proud to say it. I consider that the hours I spend with that model and clay are golden. Helps you figure out additive sculpture and color theory and how stuff dries. Did you ever take and braid a string of three-color Play-Doh and it all turns brown? It's good fun, until you run to the bathroom, leaving that toy unattended just for a couple of maybe five, ten minutes, and when you return, that stuff's all gone, and you look around to see the family dog slinking around the corners. And next thing you know, old Fido's crapping rainbows like a mantis shrimp. And it gets in the carpet red and blue as you start to wonder why'd you go with beige? What the heck kind of cleanser should, I mean, ammonia bleach or some kind of DuPont-invented miracle cleaner? Who boy! And what's that smell? Sweet Jesus! Now, friends, that's not what I mean. Point is, you got actors, clowns, mimes, drunks, cons, all pitching flimflam, all because they can't get on stage since Plato got them banned. That's Plato with a T, not with a D, of the Athens School. Subscribers of this podcast, listen to me while you can. Do you know what Plato really is? Are you aware it was invented to get coal stains off the walls of Kroger grocery stores? But after World War II, Kroger transitioned to gas heat, leaving Cincinnati-based soap manufacturer Kutol Products teetering, I say teetering, on the edge of bankruptcy until Joe Vicker saw that his sister-in-law, Kate Zufel, a preschool teacher, was giving it to her students for art projects. Hold on, that's not the point. I'm trying to catch you up on medicine shows, which came about in large part because of bans on actors in the 6th, 11th, 17th, and 18th centuries when, ah, Uh, Just go listen to part one. Oh, I'm having trouble. Summarizing all this content about Plato with a T, not a D, that Grecian fool. Yeah, I've got trouble. Summarizing all this content. Rather wax about kids' toys being used as a cleaning tool. Oh, I've got trouble. Yes, I'm in terrible, terrible trouble. If Meredith Wilson's estate decides I'm stretching fair use rules. Anyway, this is The Constant. Opening song, history that's too long, about getting things wrong. And we're married to this? The American medicine show that gurgled forth in the 19th century is a different animal than the kinds of European medicine shows that sired it. And before I go telling you about some of the more entertaining and interesting examples of the phenomenon, it'll behoove us to take a few minutes to talk about how it came to be in the first place. We've already covered the first tentative steps at the end of the last episode. In the 18th century, colonial America was awash both with British patent medicines and with British theatrical performances. And likewise, their hybrid offspring, the medicine men, referred to most commonly as mountebanks, charlatans, and quacks, proliferated across the colonies. In 1757, William Smith likened the number of medical conmen in New York to, quote, locusts in Egypt. All three of these things, the quacks, the medicines, and the dramas, were seen as scourges on the body politic, especially as relations with the motherland soured. In one of its earliest acts, the Continental Congress prohibited all trade with England, which included not only the imported bottles of turpentine and strychnine passing for medicine, but all staged entertainments, too. This opened up native markets both for a new American medical industry and new forms of American entertainment. But the evolution started out slow. Many of the British charlatans, like George Graham, found the environment too inhospitable to profitably befoul and sailed back for Jolly Ole, where they could resume bilking the countrymen with whom they were repatriating. 
Those who stuck around were mostly apothecaries and pharmacists who had an arm's length degree of deniability. They weren't marketing English medicine, they were just giving the public what it wanted. And what the public wanted was Turlington's balsam, Dr. Bateman's pictorial drops, Dr. Brodom's restorative nervous cordial, and dozens of other such English nostrums, which were no longer legal to import. This wasn't a big issue for the colonial apothecaries and pharmacists, though. They were already used to counterfeiting patent medicines to pad their bottom line. Since the products themselves were generally therapeutically useless, or worse, they didn't have to do a great job of aping them. All you had to do was roughly match the color and flavor. Even that wasn't terribly important. Patent medicines mostly floated on their packaging. They had distinctive designs for their bottles or seals or labels. Sellers in the colonies regularly collected used bottles or topped off ones as they were depleted, and it was easy enough to continue doing so. Machines and seals and molds were built and sold to imitate fresh product. It was all easy enough. There's a fun little thought experiment to be had here. Did the people selling fake patent medicines know that the real patent medicines that they were faking were also fake? Or did they believe that the legitimate stuff was effective and sell watered-down crap to patients in need anyway? And which of those possibilities is less ethical? Eh, just something to mull over. Anyway, this is the kind of thing that people were doing well before the ban on British imports, so that law only required apothecaries to crank up their operation a notch. And that was the state of American medicine throughout the Revolutionary War. If you walked into a Philadelphia pharmacy looking for a case of Dr. John Hooper's female pills to treat the irregularities in 1775, well, wouldn't you know it, I've just got a couple of cases left over. If you came back in 1780, well, wouldn't you know it, I just found an old tin in the back. The war ended in one of the more surprising upturns in military history. Somehow, the Americans had defeated the British. Most of that somehow was because England was also fighting France, Spain, and the Netherlands, and the rest of the somehow was because of arrogance and incompetence among the British military, but the newly independent colonists had a different explanation for their victory. America is fucking awesome. American exceptionalism burst out of the revolution fully formed like Athena from Zeus's head, and like a pair of black flat pumps, it went with everything. The American military? Fucking awesome. The American Congress, fucking awesome. The American people, that goes triple. American religion, you know it. The American government, not quite there yet, but definitely fucking awesome once we work out the kinks. And as for American medicine and American entertainment, neither one really existed yet at all, but they would real soon. And whatever exactly they turned out to be, they were going to be the envy of the world. It was obvious. The newly minted American people were sure they had everything they needed. They had the best people, the brightest minds, the freshest ideas, and they had a whole continent worth of unspoilt wilderness that was sure to be chock-a-block with herbs and plants and who knows what else. Not to mention the Native Americans, whom the colonists had spent a good deal of the revolution fighting and killing and whom they were about to start killing at an unthinkably greater rate, even still. That dressed-up hippie racist bullshit about mystical oneness with nature was already farting out of every self-satisfied pale white ass from Georgia to Maine, which at the time belonged to Massachusetts. Congress soon passed a new patent law, modeled after the British one they'd just escaped, that allowed for the creation of fresh American patent medicines. The first person to win approval was Samuel Lee Jr. of Wyndham, Connecticut, with what he called Dr. Lee's Bilious Pills. Samuel Lee Jr., notably, was not a doctor, but neither was Dr. Bateman or Dr. Hooper or Dr. Brodom or most of the other quacks who slapped that honorific on their cures. In Lee's case, though, the deception was a little deeper. Samuel Lee Jr. wasn't a physician, but Samuel Lee Sr. was. He was a respected physician who had distinguished himself during the revolution as the ship's surgeon of a privateer schooner. Junior weaponized his dad's good name in 1796 when he launched his bilious pills, which he claimed were basically a cure-all. Quote, They remove pains in the hand, stomach, and bowels, 
the gripes, and all obstructions. They are an excellent help for the gravel, scurvy, colic, jaundice, dropsy, and most effectual remedy for those that are cossive and are therefore convenient for all travelers by sea or land. <laughs> but wait, there's more. They have proved to be efficacious in preventing yellow fever. After a debauch by eating or drinking, they remove the loss of appetite and easily purge the stomach and bowels without pain or griping. For those that follow the sea, they are very necessary, as they prevent many diseases that seamen are often afflicted with when taken as often as once in 10 or 15 days, or oftener if required. All that not to mention worms and the ever-nebulous female complaints. What exactly was in Dr. Lee's bilious pills is hard to say. To earn registration as a patent medicine, he had to give a full accounting of their ingredients, but the patent office that held the paperwork eventually burnt down. The best guess, based on copy from an 18th century dispensary, is that they were comprised of soap, aloe, and gunpowder. Yes, you heard me. Thanks to their packaging and a lot of large, expensive, and clever ad buys in American newspapers, Dr. Lee's bilious pills were an enormous success. And I could have said a booming success or a real blast or hit the market with a bang, but I didn't because I respect you too much. In three years' time, bilious pills were selling out all up and down the eastern seaboard and raking in greenbacks. Samuel Lee was halfway down a sauntering walk on Easy Street. And then his competition showed up. In 1799, one of Samuel Lee's salesmen decided to branch off and develop his own product. His name was also Samuel Lee, Dr. Samuel H.P. Lee, to be exact, a physician out of New London, Connecticut, who put out a patent for a new medicine he called Dr. Lee's Bilious Pills. Samuel Lee, doctor, not junior, based his pills roughly on Samuel Lee's junior, not doctor, except he swapped out the gunpowder for a secret ingredient. And Samuel Lee, junior, not doctor, was pissed. The phony doctor reworked his ads as invectives and warnings against the doctor phony. Dr. Lee followed suit, publishing ads explaining that he was the real doctor and not to trust the bilious pills of his doppelganger. It was like that meme with the Spider-Mans pointing at one another, except under their masks were gunpowder pills, or we could call them Salt Peter Parker. <laughs> oh, God. For years, they wrote up long, and I mean long, like five, six, seven paragraph screeds, which they ran against one another, accusing each other of fraud and deceit, until Sammy Jr. finally brought the whole thing before the Connecticut Medical Society. To prove that Dr. Lee wasn't infringing upon Junior's patent, he revealed to them his secret ingredient. His pills couldn't be knockoffs because they didn't contain gunpowder. His pills were full of mercury. The Connecticut Medical Society was like, My God, mercury? That stuff is poisonous, toxic, deadly. You can't sell mercury as medicine without a prescription. By 1804, only one kind of bilious pills could be bought over the counter, Samuel Lee Jr.'s, which he had angrily renamed True Bilious Pills in the meantime. The good New London doctor's fortunes soon shrank away. But there was another Lee yet. Richard Lee Jr. of Baltimore, who, at the same time as the Sammies were battling it out, started up his own patent medicine company with a close friend, an Englishman named Noah Ridgely. Richard and Noah had studied medicine for a couple of years together back in England, but Richard soon convinced Noah that they could make a killing selling patent medicines back in America and brought his buddy back to Baltimore with him. Because of anti-British sentiment, they kept Ridgely's name off the enterprise, calling it Lee & Company's Patent and Family Medicine Store. And among Lee & Company's most successful products was its... <laughs> You're going to love this. Anti-bilious pills. Lee and Company's patent and family medicine operated out of a Baltimore waterfront warehouse that was owned by Richard Jr.'s father, Richard Sr., and operated by his brother, Michael. And look, 
This is gonna be worth it in just a minute, so let's make sure we're all tracking the cast of characters here. The Lee in Lee and Company was Richard Lee Jr. The company included Lee's father, Richie Sr., his brother, Michael, and his best friend and fellow non-matriculated medical student, Noah Ridgely. One, two, three, four. And then, in 1802, a fifth person enters the picture, Hannah Lee. Well, Lee at least after she met and married Richard Jr. The known details of what followed are too sparse to confidently draw a narrative out of, but they're evocative enough to spin dozens of stories. What's known is, first of all, that the business was a honking triumph and everybody was getting rich quick. And what's known is that shortly after Richard married Hannah, he picked up stakes and relocated to New York, along with his new wife and his old best friend Noah. They moved the company along with them to a location near Wall Street in Lower Manhattan. For whatever reason, Richard's dad and brother no longer had anything to do with it. For the next four years, Richard, Hannah, and Noah did brisk business out of New York until May of 1806, when the business hit a bit of a hitch. Richard suddenly died. No clue how. It was 1806 New York, so there's no shortage of disease to go around, yellow fever, spotted fever, and Lord knows the medicines Richard was selling wouldn't have saved him from those, but if you're inclined towards the dramatic, you can let yourself baselessly imagine a more nefarious end for Richard Lee, because his death set off a string of suspicious events. For one, within half a year, the widow Hannah Lee had remarried with Noah Ridgely. To be sure, we can imagine a lot of above-board reasons for their union. Hannah needed help raising her children and keeping the lease on the business, which was an uphill climb for any woman, let alone a widow at the time. It was not uncommon for a good friend or relative to chivalrously step up as the new man of the house. In Hannah's case, Noah was an especially good choice to replace Richard. She wanted to keep the medicine business going, but she didn't know how to make the product. Noah also wanted to keep the gravy flowing, and he did know how to produce the Lee and Company medicines, but the recipes and patents had belonged to Richard, and when he died, Hannah inherited them. So, sure, there is every good reason to think that Hannah and Noah's quick courtship was an entirely practical response to a tragic situation, but even if that's true, the Lees didn't like it. When Hannah and Noah married, they renamed the business Hannah Lee and & Company and worked out ads to inform the public that they were now in possession of Richard Jr.'s recipes and delivering his anti-bilious pills to the public. But by that time, Richard Sr. and brother Michael were back in the game too, working out of the original Baltimore warehouse again as Richard Lee & Son Family Medicine. And they claimed that their Lee's anti-bilious pills were the real ones. The broadside attack ads between the two Samuels Lee have nothing on the fight waged by Hannah and Richard Sr. Each of them published advertisements well in excess of a thousand words apiece, laying out their cases in excruciating detail. They published depositions from employees and sales agents, with Hannah attempting to prove that she was in possession of the original recipe book, and Richard Sr. claiming that he and Michael had been the ones making the pills the whole time. For what it's worth, Richard's arguments don't hold up at all, and Hannah's seem far more plausible, but how was the public to know that at the time? The zenith of the Lee family newspaper war took place on December 22, 1806. That day, Richard Sr. was set to run a full-page broadsheet ad in the Alexandria Advertiser, disparaging Hannah and Noah and claiming that his recipe for Lee's antibilious pills was the one and only true version. But before the copy could run, Hannah got word of it. She approached the editor of the Advertiser and convinced him to run her own rebuttal advertisement in the middle of Richard's. Smack tab! In the center of the long-winded proclamation that Richard Lee and Son was the real deal, Hannah's ad cuts in to say, hey, don't listen to this shit. These people are frauds. I've got the recipe book, and if you're looking for the real Lee's anti-bilious pills, you've got to get them through Hannah Lee & Co. But that is not all. 
the editor of the advertiser, sensing an opportunity, let Richard know what Hannah was up to and asked if he'd like to buy an additional advertisement on the next page to rebut her rebuttal. And you'd better believe he did. So... If you picked up a copy of the Alexandria Advertiser, you got to read a curiously combative ad for Richard Lee and Sons, which was interrupted halfway through by an even more combative advertisement against Richard Lee and Sons, followed by a fully enraged re-advertisement for Richard Lee and Sons again. It was a thoroughly entertaining addition. The back and forth between Hannah and Richard continued until Richard's death in 1809. Then, brother Michael picked up the torch, renaming Richard Lee and son as Michael Lee and Company, and picking up the fight where his dad left off. For a further four years, the New York Lees and the Baltimore Lees continued to duke it out in the press, all the while making a fortune off of Lee's anti-bilious pills. And then came the final twist. In 1813... Michael Lee died, but Michael Lee and company lived on under the care of Noah Ridgely. He moved back to Baltimore and took over the company while Hannah stayed behind in New York running the other company, both of them selling the same medicine. This is the deepest mystery of the Lee family medicine story, or at least the most delicious, because it's entirely possible that Noah and perhaps Hannah saw an opportunity with Michael's passing. His widow, like Hannah before her, might have needed Noah's expertise to continue the business, and a deal might have been struck then in the best interest of all involved. But it is also possible that all of our characters, Hannah, Noah, Richard, Michael, had been working together the whole time, and that the feud had been an invention from the start, a way of getting attention and selling more quackery. It's impossible to say for sure. But that was the state of early independent American medicine, whole legions of lees selling barrages of pills, both bilious and anti-bilious, and shouting at one another about it in the pages of the nation's newspapers. By the time Noah took over Michael's interest, all of these leaves were but a drop in the bucket for the ever-expanding American medical marketplace. And the bile of the bilious pill wars was about to look downright quaint. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Life can be overwhelming and many people are burned out without even knowing it. Symptoms can include lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, detachment, fatigue, and more. We associate burnout with work, but that's not the only cause. Any of our roles in life can lead us to feeling burned out, and BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life. And in my experience... Knowing where the stress is, is the first step in ameliorating it. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and constant listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash theconstant. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. What's a game where no one wins? The waiting game. When it comes to hiring, don't wait for great talent to find you. Find them first with Indeed. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. 
With Indeed Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. Something that seems great about Indeed to me is that candidates you invite to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to apply to your job than candidates who only see it in search, according to US Indeed Data. Even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to TalentNest 2019. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash The Constant. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash The Constant. Indeed.com slash The Constant. Terms and conditions apply. Paper qualified applicant not available for all users. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to 1800s America! It's a terrible place and time to be! There's a ton of new disease, spreading like disease hasn't spread in centuries. There's yellow fever, spotted fever, scarlet fever, tuberculosis, syphilis, cholera, smallpox, typhus, plague, malaria, and more, and nobody knows why or what to do about it. The why was largely because of this new thing we like to call cities. People were living thick in concentrated places, spreading disease shoulder to shoulder. The dead were left in the streets, waste was ejected straight into drinking water, and food? Oh man, the food. With the hulking growth of human populations, nutrition just bottomed out. There was a fairly pervasive belief that when it came to eating, what was unimportant, only how much mattered. So people stuffed themselves with meat and starch, both of which were frequently rotten or adulterated. Colitis, nausea, diarrhea, constipation were all just facts of life that almost everyone dealt with on a daily basis. Not to mention that living and working conditions in the cities were simply miserable taking a psychic toll that often converted into psychosomatic disease and pain. Going out to the country wasn't much better. White Americans began moving west into the Great Plains, where they had to fight the opposite problems of their urban counterparts. They struggled to get enough food and shelter and lived in virtual isolation, working their hands to the bone trying to sow enough crops into the thick prairie earth. There were endless reports of prairie madness, where pioneers were driven insane by the sheer monotony of seeing nothing but empty flat land stretched out in every direction. Icy winds would howl at all hours, trapping settlers indoors for months at a time with nothing to do but degrade and sulk. When left alone, these people too often developed conversion disorders, physical manifestations of their psychological suffering. In the rare event that company arrived, it all too often brought real disease with it. Everyone, everywhere, was miserable. The legitimate medical establishment had spent the last few centuries answering most patient complaints by opening their veins, or applying leeches to reduce their blood, or feeding them diuretics and emetics to purge their bile. These strategies, which had never worked in the first place, were even more conspicuously inefficacious in an era where human health was visibly plummeting by the day. The initial response from physicians was to assume they simply hadn't been practicing this humoral medicine hard enough. So heroic medicine rose to prominence, which called for the same sorts of bleeding and vomiting and shitting and blistering, but supercharged. Pint upon pint of blood could be removed. Pounds of flesh could be stripped away through the colon. And wouldn't you know it, people just got worse. That led to two new strains of thought, which were diametrically opposed. The first is referred to as active medication, which thought that if you had a drug that seemed to do something, like cocaine or opium or mercury or cannabis, 
the best thing to do was to throw it at any problem you encountered in as quick and as high a concentration as the body could survive. The other school went the exact opposite direction. Some doctors began to believe, quite rightly, that they were doing more harm than good. But they extrapolated from this that perhaps medical care was an impossibility. That the sick should simply be left to their own devices. To just let them flip a coin in solitude somewhere and see what comes up. This idea was known as therapeutic nihilism. And it was, frustratingly, the best bad option available to doctors of the time. But it was terrible business and remarkably uncompelling for the suffering. If the choice was between doctors who would let you remain sick versus doctors who would actively make you sicker, it was only natural to go looking for a third opinion. And for those desperate people, plenty of third options existed. By the time Samuel Lee, Jr., not doctor, stopped selling his bilious pills in the 18-teens, there were literally thousands of patent medicines on the American market. If you were lucky, you might find one that functioned as a placebo, which was an italic improvement over the more formal therapeutic nihilism. More likely, you'd end up with some low-grade poison that ran roughshod over your digestive system, but thankfully, your intestines were so continuously battered that you might not notice the difference. What you really needed was a release, an escape, a bit of entertainment to help you forget your troubles. And America was figuring out a lot of weird ways to deliver that. The most prominent and visible stage for frivolity in early 19th century America was the museum. Not the kind of museum you'd think of today, though. The museums of America started out as private collections of artifacts and oddities, which were seen as, if not education, at least not body. But bodiness seeped in rapidly enough, and museums quickly became places to see freak shows, burlesques, and impossibly expanding collections of counterfeit curios. The largest example of this phenomenon was New York City's American Museum, which was well on its way down the drain when it was purchased in 1841 by P.T. Barnum. Barnum's impact on American society writ large is difficult to grapple with. I'd argue he was one of the most important people in shaping American identity in the 19th century, right up there with Andrew Jackson and a few other noted sociopaths. His legacy on American entertainment is even less easy to calculate, and Barnum's American Museum was the very sharp tip of that spear. It was at the American Museum that he first displayed Joyce Heth, an 80-year-old enslaved woman whom he had purchased, telling crowds she was a full 160 years old and the former wet nurse to President George Washington. At the American Museum, he unveiled his Fiji mermaid, a juvenile monkey torso sewn onto the tail of a fish. He promoted Fedor Jeftichu as the dog-faced boy, William Henry Johnson as Zip the Pinhead, Chang and Ang Bunker as the Siamese twins. Barnum paired one of the finest eyes for sensationalism with one of the strongest stomachs for exploitation in American history, and burnt a trail of disgusting opportunism and bigotry straight through the heart of the country's culture. And he made millions doing it. Soon, imitators were everywhere. The already lurching slide of American museums towards sensationalism and gawking became a head-over-heels tumble. But there were also plenty of new entrants who saw the popularity of the form as an opportunity. But these were smaller fish who had to find a way to compete with more massive and established grifters, which they accomplished through a new, smaller brand of the form, the Dime Museum. Dime museums didn't have the sorts of staff and size and collections of their larger cousins. They were typically only a few rooms wide, but they figured out how to draw crowds anyway. They could be even more unmoored from good and honest practices, for one, giving up all but the flimsiest, dryer sheet-like fig leaf of respectability. They could get aggressive in their sales pitch, putting barkers, musicians, and performers right out on the street in front of their doors. And they could do the thing that gave them their name undercut the price of their competition, offering admission for just a dime. But that last part is especially critical to our story, because 10 cents ahead wasn't enough to make most of these joints profitable. They needed a hook, a second source of unadvertised income to be drawn out once they lured their marks in the door. And for that, they turned, 
quite logically, to medicine. The first American medicine shows were stationary, held in fixed storefronts behind the turnstiles of the dye museums. But they didn't stay there. In 1868, Barnum's American Museum burned down for the second time, and rather than rebuild, he decided to take his show on the road. By that time, plenty of others had had the same idea. In the cities, there were museums and vaudeville shows to distract the miserable masses. Out in the country, diversions were more diversified. There were religious tent revival meetings, circuses, and patchwork variety shows that crudely fused all kinds of skits, sketches, demonstrations, lectures, and performance that people might be even temporarily captivated by. As the century stumbled on, multiple different strains of these traveling entertainments emerged. Among the most popular were traveling circuses, blackface-centric minstrel shows, and, after Buffalo Bill Cody broke the code, Wild West shows. And then there was the temperance movement, which saw popular entertainment not just as a way to get their anti-alcohol message out, but as something that might also distract people from drinking in the meantime. On static stages, temperance theater was made mostly of plays like W.H. Smith's The Drunkard, a moralistic slog through the increasingly poor fortunes of farm boy Edward Wilson, who is driven to drink by a conniving lawyer. The show follows Edward's downward spiral, losing his home and his family before finally stumbling into the loving embrace of Arden Rensselaer, who dries Edward out and gets him returned to his family homestead and defeats the scheming attorney through the clever use of Deus Ex Machina. It's unwatchable, but still a good enough way to forget about your yellow fever for a couple of hours that it became the second most watched American play of the 19th century, just behind Uncle Tom's Cabin. It premiered, by the way, in Barnum's American Museum. In the traveling versions, temperance plays were scaled down. Often the casts were replaced with Punch and Judy-like puppets. But they still featured live music, dancing, and dime museum-esque displays to help draw in spectators who didn't need much convincing because many of them were, as already discussed, bored to the point of madness. At the end of the evening, to lay one more hat upon an already wobbly pile of hats, the MC would come out and give an explicit pitch for the audience to turn away from drink and vice. The Medicine Show, which had its roots way back in the fall of the Roman Empire and had been evolving ever since, hit the road in the United States along with these circuses and minstrel shows and vaudeville circuits and temperance plays and traveling museums and Wild West spectaculars. And every time it encountered one of them, it mutated a bit more, picking up a little more razzle-dazzle and growing into an absolute behemoth. They borrowed music and performance from vaudeville and minstrelsy. They took sensationalism from the traveling museums and circuses. They took especially big bites out of the Wild West shows by dressing up their curatives as ancient Indian remedies. And the temperance plays, man, they often simply grafted themselves straight onto those, adding a final, final act once the plea for sobriety was done. How could the drinkers in the crowd get off the sauce? Why? With the very patent medicines found here in this cart, which more often than not were themselves pretty alcoholic. There were essentially two varieties of medicine show, although the border between them was paper towel porous, and one quickly became the other entirely or snapped back depending on the need. The problem with running a medicine show in 1800s America is that when you drove into a town, you never knew which audience you were going to get. The wild, debauched weirdos who were hankering for freak shows and TNA, or the quiet, prudish weirdos who wanted a good moral entertainment about drunks getting their teeth kicked in by life. So you had to be ready to mix it up or ride the line. John Hamlin was a traveling magician based out of Chicago who had seen the country and knew its people long before he and his brother Lysander decided to start scamming them with hooey potions. Together, they formulated a cure for, in ascending order of flabbergast, muscle aches, rheumatism, pneumonia, cancer, and rabies. It was a rich cocktail that included sassafras, camphor, and cloves for flavor with in ascending order of flabbergast, ammonia, chloroform, and turpentine for kick. 
all mixed into a solution of about 60% grain alcohol, the perfect thing to help you cut out the whiskey. He called it Hamlin Wizard Oil. Hamlin combined his magic show with a four-piece brass band dressed up as Quakers to convince the public they were fine and upstanding. The small team rode around in a wagon which they could roll down into a traveling stage when they came upon an audience. Then they'd pass out sheet music for the crowd to sing along with, lyrics mostly about how great Hamlin Wizard Oil was and all the good it had done. There'd be some magic tricks, some monologuing, a lot of jokes, and one final round of product pitching before the night was through. And the crowd bought Hamlin Wizard Oil by the box. As you've already deduced, Hamlin Wizard Oil was medically useless, like most of the patent medicines carted around the country through the century. Most, but not all. There were, extremely occasionally, real medicines slipped into the fakes, like Philips Milk of Magnesia or Bear Aspirin. But there was no good way to know the difference between the stuff that worked and the stuff that didn't. Not even the manufacturers had much of an idea. The effective medicines were not more successful than the ineffective ones. People just bought whatever. You already know a lot of the reasons why. Doctors of the era were generally useless too, or worse than useless, not to mention expensive. People were suffering and desperate. There was no real regulation or oversight and no good way of distributing reliable information. And a lot of the stuff people were buying did make them feel better because they were made of alcohol or cocaine or opium or pot. But there's another factor to consider, the medicine shows themselves. I don't mean just that they were good marketing, although they were very good marketing. I mean, if you lived in small town Indiana in 1870, where there was nothing to do, and in came some nice folk on wagons who struck up a band and put on a play and gave a captivating speech and did a strongman act or carted out some weird artifact or performed some supposed Native American dance, well, you owed them something for their troubles, didn't you? The show was free, or at worst, some nominal fee, not enough to support the people who'd just entertained you and way below the value of that entertainment. So it was only proper to give them their due and buy a bottle or two of whatever they were hawking to show your support. Hamlin Wizard Oil was one of the most successful medicine shows of the 19th century. It made rich men out of its proprietors, John and Lysander Hamlin, so much so that in 1873, they bought a valuable plot of Chicago real estate behind the world's largest billiard hall, right where the Picasso sculpture stands today. They built on it a grand garden with fountains and waterfalls where people could drink while listening to music. In 1878, they built the garden into the Hamlin Grand Opera House, a gaslit 1,700-seat theater. The medicine show industry, which had been built on theater performers over the course of thousands of years, gave back. Hamlin's Grand Opera House helped launch and sustain the careers of hundreds of American performers over the decades, including Lionel Barrymore, Douglas Fairbanks, Ethel Waters, and the Marx Brothers. Not to mention that it premiered two of the most American shows, Babes in Toyland and, naturally, The Wizard of Oz. We'll be right back. Hey, listen. You know what that means. It's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business, so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. Scaling your business is a journey of endless possibility, and I love how Shopify has all the tools and resources that make it easy for any business to succeed, from down the street to around the globe. Shopify powers millions of businesses, from first sale to full scale. Reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. 
Gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting on conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash the constant, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash the constant right now. Shopify.com slash the constant. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation, Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast, wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. By the 1880s, there were dozens of medicine shows touring the United States. Most were smaller operations with a few big boys mixed in, and a plurality of them all were now fashioning themselves as selling, quote, authentic ancient Indian remedies. The shows were styled to support that dubious claim, increasingly modeled after Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West shows, full of phony cowboys and even phonier Native Americans performing trick shots and fire-eating and all sorts of bullshit Native rituals that helped build and cement European misconceptions of Native culture to this day. Most of the time, the supposed Native Americans were just white guys in brownface, but the most successful medicine show of them all was different. It was called the Kickapoo Indian Medicine Show, and while it was formed, owned, and run by a couple of New Englanders out of Connecticut, and while its medicines were complete and utter flimflam, it became a juggernaut of the industry thanks to its, and I'm here quoting to a dangerous degree here, authenticity. The Kickapoo Show traveled in wigwams and teepees and put on performances that included actual Native Americans. Not from the Kickapoo tribe, though, since the U.S. government had long since pushed them onto reservations in Kansas. Instead, the owners of the company worked out contracts with the Bureau of Indian Affairs to send them displaced natives from around the Great Lakes to perform for them, under the proviso that the company provide room, board, and $30 per month salary. A situation that practically amounted to indentured servitude. At the top of the show, the MC, or professor, would introduce the supposed Kickapoo and give them a chance to speak to the audience while the professor translated. Of course, said professor didn't know what they were actually saying and turned their speeches into endorsements of Kickapoo Indian Sagwa, a near panacea guaranteed to cure constipation, liver complaint, dyspepsia, indigestion, loss of appetite, scrofula, rheumatism, chills, fever, and quote, any disease. The professor would translate the company line that the sagwa was made from roots, herbs, barks, and leaves that cleanse the blood. Later, chemical analysis indicated that it was actually just aloe and stale beer. Unsurprisingly, there's no record of what the performers of the Kickapoo Indian Medicine Show were actually saying to their audiences, but there are several reports of their fellows laughing hysterically just off stage. 
While the late 19th century represents the time when medicine shows and the patent medicines they spieled for were at their most popular, they were also at their most endangered. For arguably the first time in human history, doctors were beginning to practice actual medicine. The kind that, you know, helped people. Many had already been rightly circumspect of the patent medicine industry, basically since its inception. But again, considering the alternatives, it was hard to press too hard. At the turn of the century, that all changed, and the medicine show would face its greatest threat. Samuel Hopkins Adams. If the name sounds familiar to you, it's likely because of his literary work. Adams wrote a number of books that live on mostly because they were adapted into Golden Age films, including the Frank Capra, Clark Gable, Claudette Colbert rom-com, It Happened One Night. I saw an island in the Pacific once. That's where I'd like to take her. She'd have to be the sort of a girl who'd jump in the surf with me and love it as much as I did. Nights when you and the moon and the water all become one. And you feel you're part of it, something big and marvelous. Take me with you, baby. Take me to your island. I want to do all those things you talked about. The Judy Garland waitress musical, The Harvey Girls. What a lovely trip. I'm feeling so fresh and alive. And I'm so... And The Gorgeous Hussy a lightweight pre-code take on the petticoat affair that was one of the main subjects of 1876, our episode about the Hayes election. He also wrote a series of body paperback jazz age dime novels under the pseudonym Werner Fabian with titles that tell you most of what you need to know, like Flaming Youth, Weekend Girl, Sailor's Wives, Unforbidden Fruit, and my favorite, Widow's Oats. Ooh, I do declare. But before all that, Samuel Hopkins Adams was a muckraking journalist for Collier's Weekly, which published a series of hard-hitting, no-pulled-punches exposés on the patent medicine racket, which were then published as a best-selling book entitled The Great American Fraud in 1905. At the same time, Upton Sinclair published The Jungle, and between the two of them, a firestorm was ignited over the safety, quality, and honesty of the food and medical industries. In 1906, Congress passed the Pure Food and Drug Act, which defined misbranding and adulteration for the first time in federal law and gave power of enforcement over to the Bureau of Chemistry, which would eventually become the Food and Drug Administration. Patent medicine was in for serious trouble. The first sign came in 1908 when DFC agents went after a DC pharmacist named Robert Harper. Since the 1880s, Harper had been making and selling a headache remedy of his own concoction, which he called Kuferhedeki Brain Food. He said it was harmless, he said it was a cure, and he said it contained 30% alcohol. Agents found that all of those claims were false, and a jury convicted him. He was fined $700, a pretty paltry penalty. Some patent medicine makers, like the Kickapoo Indian Medicine Company, had publicly supported the passage of the law, saying they welcomed some standards being brought to the industry. Really, they were just happy because the size of the fines they could potentially face were so small. They figured the law would help legitimize them, offering the appearance of regulation without all that nasty, you know, regulating. But they'd missed a step. Sure, the fines were small, but the Pure Food and Drug Act also gave the FDA the power to seize and destroy the violating product. All of Harper's brain food, that's spelled F-U-D-E, by the way, was removed from his pharmacy and burnt. Uh-oh, said everyone else. The same year, agents determined that Clark Stanley's snake oil liniment contains no snake oil at all. It was just mineral oil, tallow, chili peppers, and more turpentine. He was fined just 20 bucks, but his snake oil stores were emptied, and his business, which had been so successful that it inspired imitators around the world, was now forever synonymous with bullshit. Hamlin Wizard Oil was struck with a $200 fine and had its whole storehouse seized and destroyed for the false claim of curing cancer. 
Kickapoo was hit with fines and had its products dumped into the river when FDA agents showed they contained far more alcohol than disclosed. Coca-Cola was nailed twice, once for cocaine and again for replacing cocaine with a borderline insane amount of caffeine. It looked like Samuel Hopkins Adams had done it. With just a few articles tied up in a book, he had inspired a law that would end the duplicitous patent medicine industry single-handedly, and with it, the tradition of the American medicine show. And then the fucking Supreme Court got involved. In 1910, Dr. O.A. Johnson of Kansas City, Missouri, shipped a truckload of goods across town to Kansas City, Kansas, and the trap was sprung. The Bureau of Chemistry needed drugs to cross state lines in order to have jurisdiction to prosecute under the Commerce Clause, a sentence which is probably baffling to any non-American listeners, and for that I'm sorry, but we don't have time to explain it right now. When agents of the BOC seized the truck, they found within shipments of five medicines of Dr. Johnson's making, which he sold as a sort of fake drug cocktail called Dr. Johnson's Mild Combination Treatment for Cancer. The Bureau alleged that Johnson was making false claims when he said that the combination treatment could cure all cancer and indeed, quote, all disease, and that he was therefore guilty of violating the Pure Food and Drug Act by, to quote the act, making the delivery of misbranded drugs for shipment to any other state or territory. But Johnson fought back. He said that there had been no mislabeling whatsoever, that he had accurately described on the bottles their contents in accordance with the law. He had been honest about what was in his drugs, which is to say, no drugs but a lot of alcohol. The matter of whether his particular combination of herbs and booze truly cured cancer wasn't a concern. The Pure Food and Drug Act was quite clear, though. It defined misbranding as applying to all drugs or articles of food, the package or label of which shall bear any statement, design, or device regarding such article or the ingredients or substances contained therein, which shall be false or misleading in any particular. No, see, that's what I mean, said Johnson. I wasn't misleading about what was in the drugs. The Supreme Court, in a long string of semantic parsing, the likes of which you might have twirling already in your mind, agreed with Johnson. When the law said you couldn't print misleading statements about a drug, it only meant that you had to be accurate about what that drug was, not what it did or did not do. You could sell an invisibility potion, and as long as it said, ingredients, strychnine, on the side, you were good to go. The next year, Congress passed the Shirley Amendments to specifically override the Supreme Court's interpretation. The Shirley Amendments explicitly prohibited fraudulent claims about the effectiveness of a product, not just its contents. But that was a rough kind of fix, because now the government had to prove not just that a drug didn't do what it said it did, but that the seller knew that and was intentionally defrauding customers. There were, and are, plenty of quack cures peddled by true believers. And under the Shirley Amendments, they were fine and dandy demonstrating beyond a reasonable doubt that a huckster was operating in bad faith when they were surrounded by dupes earnestly making identical kinds of claims was nearly impossible. Which is how we came to the last act of The Great American Medicine Show, when things got zanier than ever. Now look, we're not turning this into a three-parter exactly, there's simply no way to draw together all the weird medical ideas and cons of 20th century America. We've covered a bunch of them in the past, and we'll cover a bunch more in the future. But while we're on the subject of medicine shows, I want to tell you about two, just two, of the versions that drew a lot of attention in the 1900s, because they're absolute gobsmackers. So that's what we're going to do in two weeks. I was supposed to take the last week of May off, but I want to get these out while we're still on topic. So if you're a patron, worry not, I'm not going to be charging for the next episode. And I'm going to try my best to keep it somewhat brief, since my tank is running a little low. But these stories, oh boy, you're going to be glad to hear them, I promise. Music for this episode provided by Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. If you're listening to this show, thank you. While I'm humbled and grateful for the success of The Constant, it bears saying that we're still a small fish in an increasingly large and corporately sponsored ocean, 
So you, yes you, are an important part of keeping things going. If you'd like to help even further, there are a lot of ways to do so. You can rate and review us wherever you're listening. You can sign up to be a patron by going to patreon.com slash the constant and get access to the secret feed. You can find us on social media and get on the old share and retweet train. Most importantly, you can tell people about the show. If you know someone who you think would appreciate the constant, send them a message or a text or a link or tell them about it the next time you see it. If everyone listening right now got one person to join them, that would, let's do the math here, quintuple our audience. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where Clark Stanley set up shop at the 1893 World's Fair and introduced snake oil to the entire planet, this has been The Constant. And we're married to this?